0: It's July 30th, 2021. This is the Room Now Podcast, and I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of roomnow.com. Thanks so much for joining me. We're going to start with a discussion of how much psoriasis do you need to have to have psoriatic arthritis? Or is that like that old childhood saying of how much wood should a woodchuck chuck chuck if a woodchuck could... I didn't even get that right, did I? Well, this is an article about the burden of disease, the burden of psoriasis needed to make a diagnosis of psoriatic arthritis in patients with relatively early disease. It's an article from the journal Rheumatology. A Dutch study of 644 early PSA patients showed the following numbers: that there were, in fact, 17% who had no psoriasis. So that would be psoriatic arthritis sine psoriasis. I've always said that number is about 10% based on some other reports. This says 17%. And they're basing the amount of psoriasis on the POSSE scores they have in this particular cohort. So that was a POSSE score of zero. 71%, 71%, not surprisingly, had mild psoriasis, a posse less than 7. 9% had moderate psoriasis of a posse 7 to 12. And only 4% had severe psoriasis with a posse score greater than 12. Interestingly, the skin scores, the posse scores, didn't fluctuate very much in the one year of observation. So the question is again, how much do you need to have to have psoriatic arthritis if you're seeing a rheumatologist? Not very much. 75, no, that's uh, 88% have either no psoriasis or mild psoriasis. I think this is important because, you know, the psoriatic arthritis trials also report on skin outcomes. I think they're horribly unreliable because the amount of psoriasis going into these studies is very low. Secondly, the psoriasis assessments are being done by rheumatologists. I don't know how good you are at scoring psoriasis by posse. Um, the psoriasis area severity index. But most of us are not very good at that, including the trialists. But there's only a few who have very severe disease in this particular cohort. So again, I think it's instructive for us who manage psoriatic arthritis. I think that most rheumatologists, in fact, take care of mild skin, moderate skin, and severe skin. And since you're doing the joints and the drugs are often the same, you can do it. Sometimes we don't need dermatologists to be always involved in these cases. I found a nice uh, retrospective study um, also from the Journal of Rheumatology in this same month that looked at the role of early pulse steroids with IV methylprednisolone one gram times three days or IV immunoglobulin, IVIG, early in the course of patients with dermatomyositis and polymyositis. So this is a retrospective study of over 200 patients. And what they showed was that people who got either IV methylprednisolone, pulse steroids, or pulse steroids plus IVIG, that they had basically a 56 to 58% better odds of achieving a complete response down the line. So looking at future outcomes, of course, a retrospective study, Um, and there's a bias here Um, but nonetheless I found that interesting that early aggressive therapy did impact better outcomes later on Um, they did show that pulse steroids and IVIG um, also increased the odds that you would be able to discontinue steroids Um, however uh, as far as really big picture items like death or toxicity these did not seem to impact mortality Um, and so the question is Do you use pulse steroids and IVIG early on in managing um, your patients with dermatomyositis or polymyositis? I would not use this study as an endorsement of that. I think this reflects a particular bias in how they practice. I rarely use pulse steroids in, in dermatomyositis, polymyositis. I sometimes use IVIG, but that's mainly because I can't use other therapies or the patient is refractory. So I think this does say that there's hope here and that we need really well-designed trials. And now that we actually we have IVIG as an approved therapy, uh, recently FDA approved, um, in myositis, uh, we should actually try to get some good data on this. So we do know that managing patients with a pain, uh, especially osteoarthritis, is a very difficult um, proposition. Um, many of the drugs that we rely on either don't work or have toxicities. We talked recently about muscle relaxants not working, limited effects of nonsteroidals, toxic toxic effects of nonsteroidals, etc. So there was a nice study that came from a, uh, a UK uh, uh, registry called the Thin Registry. This looked at over a half million individuals and how many of those had bariatric surgery and what were the consequences of weight loss surgery. They didn't say which kind whether it was sleeve or a ruin y or whatever but nonetheless amongst the 694 patients in this registry they did note that that there was in that cohort less overall use of analgesic therapies in the next 12 months after sur- surgery it was a 23% less use of analgesics and i think that's encouraging um, maybe better was the data that said that these patients actually had uh, a lowering of their all-cause mortality compared to controls. And actually, that was like a 55% lowering of all-cause mortality. I think this is just an important point. You know, we, f- we are very frustrated by managing pain. Um, and if you can't manage pain with, you know, surgery, orthopedic surgery, or by controlling inflammation, or by physical therapy, um, the modalities that you have at your disposal are limited. Um, bariatric surgery should be a consideration in those who are obese and morbidly obese. But then again, it's not the surgery alone. It has to be a big, complete program of re-education, especially on nutrition and diet. Um, a nice article from uh, Arthritis Care and Research raises a gigantic question about what causes lupus. And in this particular study... This is claims-based analyses of the U.S. Medicaid um, data set. They showed that if you had PTSD, you had a two-fold higher risk of getting lupus than if you didn't have PTSD and had Medicaid. I think being on Medicaid alone is enough to give me PTSD. Um, But nonetheless, these are formal ICD-10 diagnoses of PTSD, and looking down the line, what would happen with the risk of lupus and again, they looked at 10,000 lupus patients, compared that to 100,000 controls without lupus, uh, and the rates were higher. It begs the question, is this kind of data real, or is this fishing for a p-value? You know, again, the authors on this are really experienced population um, researchers. I mean, they, they know the, the methods to employ here to make this reliable. But again, it's hard to extrapolate this into... Um, into the real world. You know, there's a lot of reports out there about the role of stress in causing arthritis. You know, the role of um, major life events in predicting future autoimmune disease. Um, This kind of falls in line with that. And again, you don't know why someone gets lupus. It's not as simple as the wrong genotype at the wrong time with the wrong bug in the wrong, you know, sunlight. It's not that simple. Um, And why not? You know, mental stress from PTSD. Uh, I like this study. It comes from Japan, and it, it examines the um, management of patients with elder-onset rheumatoid arthritis. This is These are patients with the onset of RA over the age of 65, I think they used in the study. They studied a 1,000 patients and compared them to um, 700 patients who did not have elder-onset. That would be less than age 65 onset of RA. And when they looked at both cohorts, demographically, they were matched other than age. Um, They were equal in disease activity, same numbers with low disease activity and same numbers with high disease activity. And when they look on down the line with how these people are treated, they basically had the same DMARD choices, the same response to DMARDs, the same reasons for DMARD discontinuation. The point being that elder onset RA behaves just like RA. It's probably not a different disease other than it's in the elderly. And I put this up here because there's a ton of data out there. We haven't presented it recently that says the elderly do not get treated aggressively. The elderly do not get biologic. The elderly do not get combination therapy. And is it because of their age? Is it because of their comorbidities? There's a lot of concern about I don't know, giving older people drugs that work. I would argue strongly against that. And this data also favors the equal treatment of those who are elderly with the new onset of RA as you would treat those with um, RA with onset at age 20, 40, 50. Um, we're going to end with a bevy of COVID related abstracts. A lot happened this week that you probably know about, you know, that the FDA um, actually uh, gave emergency use authorization for baricitinib alone in the treatment of severe COVID patients hospitalized, both adults and kids over the age of two, who are either taking supplemental oxygen um, on mechanical ventilation, um, undergoing ECMO. Again, severe patients can get baricitinib alone. As you know, baricitinib is FDA approved, but along with the use of remdesivir as combination therapy. The merits of baricitinib alone has prompted the FDA to give an emergency use authorization. Uh, I think there's a lot of good evidence for why this particular drug would work well in COVID. Um, the journal Clinical Infection, Infectious Disease, which is a journal of the IDSA, the, the Society for um, Infectious Disease Specialists, had a nice study about uh, the persistence of symptoms and what happens post-COVID. Um, in this particular study, it was a German study, almost 100 patients followed for 12 months. They enrolled a lot more, but 12-month data was only available in 96. Um, only 22% of their cohort were symptom-free one year after COVID, meaning, sorry, 78% still lingering effects. What do they see? Mostly fatigue and over half, dysme, and over a third, uh, cognitive problems with concentration word finding and 40%. Uh, or 30% and sleeping problems in in a quarter of the patients. Why should you care as a rheumatologist? Well, you care because this is affecting all aspects of medicine. But serologic positivity, ANAs greater than 1 to 160 or equal to 1 to 160 is seen at one year in 44% of these patients. What? Again, there's a lot going on. There's a lot we still don't know. What we do know is, of course, that vaccine, vaccination works. We do know that everyone should be getting the vaccine. Today's, or yesterday's, MMWR reported on vaccination rates in healthcare workers who work at long-term healthcare facilities like nursing homes and whatnot. Those people are highly at risk for getting COVID. You'd think most of them, in fact, should be vaccinated. no. In fact, um, only about 75% of the physicians at these long-term facilities have been vaccinated. And this is data from March of 2021, just a few months ago. Um, Nurses, not so good, 57%. And nurses' aides, 46%. What are these people thinking? I don't know. There's a lot of education that needs to be filled in here. Uh, and this is contributing to why we 're going to have an upsurge in covid numbers we 're already seeing it um, and that led to the CDC this week reversing its stance on mask use and they said, as you should know that patients who have been vac- patients people you and me who have been vaccinated against the covid nineteen um, virus um, should be wearing masks uh, in um, public and indoors in places where the virus is surging. I don't know if you've seen the map lately. It looks like they're all red, meaning the virus rate rates are going up. But if you especially in one of those states where the vaccination rate is less than 50 percent, you really do need to go back to wearing masks, especially indoors, especially around large crowds, especially when you don't know who you're around. Now, they said, again, indoors, public places, where the virus is surging. They also also recommend that um, universal masking be advocated for teachers, staff, students, and visitors to school as we get back into the school year. Obviously, this is creating a lot of discussion in the public sector. You should be prepared to have these discussions. Um, Lastly... A rheumatology related report from Jeff Sparks and his colleagues working for as part of the GRA, the Global Rheumatology Alliance. Annals uh, Rheumatic Disease publishes the um, effects of DMARD therapy on COVID 19 outcomes. Specifically, they looked at 869 RA patients in their data set who were taking either a biologic or targeted synthetic um, DMARD at uh, the start of COVID. Um, amongst this cohort, and of course, this is a skewed cohort where t- we tend to report the worst cases, but there were uh, 21% of that cohort was hospitalized and 5.5% um, died. Those were the untoward outcomes. And what was associated with that? Any drugs that we might have been using? Well, it turns out for the most part, um, all the biologics and, uh, and, and really did not have much of a risk except for two. And these severe outcomes, again, this is all compared to TNF inhibitors alone. Well, do TNF inhibitors have an increased risk of severe outcomes? As you know, earlier reports suggested that no, they don't. And if anything, they might actually have better outcomes. So that's why they used the TNF inhibitor treated patients as the referral referent group here. Severe outcomes were seen with rituximab, a fourfold higher risk of severe outcomes, and JAK inhibitors, a twofold higher risk. And those were significant. Now, what does that really mean? Um, It means one of two things, inhibiting B cells or inhibiting Janus kinase is a bad thing for the biology of COVID, um, for those who get COVID. It could also mean that um, maybe these drugs were the drugs used because they're kind of last-line drugs. They're not first-line drugs. They're not first-line biologics. Um, Not many of using JAK inhibitors um, after methotrexate or as your next choice after a TNF inhibitor That number is growing, but it's still not the majority of you. These drugs tend to be used last. Patients who get their last choice are often the ones who are worse as far as disease activity. And we do know that disease activity is a risk factor for severe outcomes. So worry about your patients who are not well controlled. Probably avoid rituximab at this point. I'm not avoiding JAK inhibitors in my patients in this era of COVID. I'm not stopping My patients on either of these drugs if they're well controlled in this era of COVID. Now, if they get the infections, then you can, you know, make a decision about that. But recognize we just talked about baricitinib being FDA approved for, um, not FDA approved, sorry, emergency use authorization for severe hospitalized COVID. We know that there's a report of tofacitinib also working in patients with uh, active COVID. Um, So, Again, I think the, the, the spotlight here is really on rituximab as a drug that's going to be maybe the most problematic for you in managing it. Bottom line is don't stop it if it's working. Don't start it if you have other options. Um, if you're down to a choice between treating someone with rituximab because they really need it to, for active disease versus making another choice um, and or holding off on the rituximab, Treat active disease. That's the most immediate thing. It's going to have the most immediate morbidi- morbidity and mortality risk as opposed to the, what might could happen if you continue or um, start rituximab. Uh, that's it for this week. Go to the website. Check out our citations for things you're interested in and more. I'll encourage you to look at our website and our email where we you know we always are featuring what we call therapeutic updates. Um, This month we have a therapeutic update that looks at the science of epatacitinib. I think you'll find that interesting, stimulating, and you might learn a few new things. Check it out. We'll see you next week here on the podcast. Bye.